Romans chapter 7 and verse number 21. We'll read to the end of the chapter. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into ca captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. This is another one of those passages of Scripture that, as I've told you before, is so challenging to some churches and people and denominations that they refuse to allow Romans 7 read in the text of services. But let me tell you, there's some great truths wrapped up in the text of verses 21 through 25 as there has been through the whole chapter. I think your attention ought to be drawn as the title of the message is given, The Presence of Evil. You should note that in verse number 21... Paul talks about finding a law here. He's uh, already talked about a law back over in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. He said that. And then he said in verse 18, I know or for I know that in me, that's in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And then verse 21, though, he says, I find then a law. And I find then a law that when I would do good, and I want you to note the line that follows, evil is present with me. And the Greek does not allow for a passing bird over your head. It implies there's something that's settled there and that has been there and it is there and it's going to remain there. There's evil present with me. So this morning I speak to you on the subject of the presence of evil. And I say to you to start the service that every one of you have it. I have it. You have it. Everybody you've ever met has it. And everybody in every part of the world has it. It's just a matter of the, what control is made over it and what mastery does it rise to. For instance, all of us, our minds have been saturated with what we call the facts of evil. But I say to you, the explaining of the acts of evil is a whole other thing. For instance, who can dare explain a Susan Smith who heartlessly drowns her two children in a lake? Who could dare explain a Jeffrey Dahmer who cut up and ate his victims after befriending them for months? Who could ever explain an Eric and Lyle Menendez who cold-heartedly murdered their mom and dad with a shotgun in their own living room? Or who could explain a Paul Bernardo who tortured, raped, and mutilated two teenage girls in Canada while the sister of one of the girls watched and videoed the whole event and by our own testimony with the intent for viewing pleasure later that evening. Who can explain that kind of evil? I know we're all familiar with a man by the name of Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke, you probably know, is an 18th century British statesman. And he made that famous statement that's been put on all kinds of brochures and especially around election time. You will see it pop up again and again. It's that statement that he made when he said, quote, All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. That's a great statement. That's a wonderful thing. But I wonder how familiar he was with the text of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7 and verse number 21 that there's evil present in every man. I'm reminded... 
when the disciples asked our Lord to teach them to pray. He did so. You remember the passage? It's in Luke chapter 11. Let me just read what he said. In Luke chapter 11, in verse number 1, our Lord starts, It came to pass that as he was praying a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Last phrase, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. We often thought about that text of Scripture, and most folks give the idea that he's talking about some external problem out there. Deliver us from these circumstances that come that are evil. That's not all that he meant. The evil that he speaks of here is evil wherever it's found. And what he knew that these disciples evidently did not know is that there is presence of evil in every human being on the face of the earth. John reminds us in uh, in 1 John. Let me take you back. That's toward the New Testament end. 1 John, and look if you would at chapter number 2. 1 John, chapter number 2. Listen to these verses, because what John tells us here, he tells us, as it were, where evil springs. Where does it come from? How's it come about? In 1 John chapter 2, and verse number 15, here's what John said. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Verse 17, The world passeth away, and lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And then skip over, if you would, concerning the issue of what John says about the world to chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Look at verse 4 and 5. 1 John 5 verse 4, Whatsoever is born of God, now note the phrase, overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. The point made is that the world is a springboard or a source for evil. That's for sure. The good news in 1 John 5, though, John says, the good news is you've overcome the world. That's not the bigger problem here. Then he goes to the second stage. Look back over to chapter 3. In 1 John chapter 3, look, if you would, at verse number 8. 1 John chapter 3, verse number 8, John said, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Skip over or backward to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 13. 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, he says, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. And I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. So here John writes in two separate passages. One, you Christians have overcome the world. And two, you Christians, speaking in this context, young men, you have overcome the evil one, the wicked one. Well, that tells us that the devil and the world have been overcome, it says nothing about one other problem. And that is, where else does this thing of sin and evil spring? You have to go to chapter number 1 of 1 John about that. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, John says, If we say that we have not sin or no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What he's talking about in that text of scripture, as I've stated before, is the sin nature. And what he is saying, if you say that you have no sin, you're absolutely deceived. If you say you've not sinned, you make him out a liar. He is simply saying there is sin in every life of every believer, and it is in the form of what we call the sin nature. It is the presence of evil that is with every individual. And that's what Paul is writing about back over in Romans chapter 7. The catch of the whole thing is you can read your Bible from cover to cover, and you won't find what John said about the devil in the world. Nowhere will you find it said that don't worry about a sin nature, you have overcome it. It ain't in there. Not one time does it say you've overcome the sin nature. The evil presence that's in you, don't worry about it. No big deal. Nowhere does he say that. But everywhere he says you be alert to this, there's an evil presence in you. And if you're not careful, it'll rise up and it will begin to move in, in such a way that it'll absolutely change your life forever. Here's the thing, and this is important to note. The more victories available, and I'm confident a lot more, than most of us utilize. And when we get over to Romans chapter 8, you get to hear about that. Romans chapter 7 doesn't deal with the victory. It deals with the conflict. But chapter 8 deals with the victory and how it comes about. In the setting of that, in Romans chapter number 7, passage of Scripture that I called your attention to now, look, if you would, at verse number 21. In verse number 21, Paul says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. What this verse of Scripture is reflecting on is two things. It sort of has two parts to it. The first thing he's reflecting on is that, that inside of you there is this law of sin and death. This law of sin and death. It's the same thing that we'll get into in Romans chapter 8 when we look at verse number 2 where Paul writes, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. When we get to chapter 8, you get to hear there's some victory over this thing. But when you read verse 21, what he's talking about is he finds then a law. There's this law of sin and death that operates in every person. And he's saying, you want to know why you do what you do? That's why you do what you do, because there is within your frame, in your person, who you are, a law of sin and death. And it works against the other law, the law of God. Everything that God stands for, everything that you hear taught and preached, there is inside of you something that fights against that. And it fights the more with the intent of which your ambition is to do right. The more you intend to do right, the stronger it seems the urge, the exhortment, the encouragement is to do evil. And the reason for that is very simple. There's a continuous presence of evil. It comes from the sin nature. And Paul, in verse number 21, sees it that it's so universal and so common that he calls it a law. And the principle, and in fact, the word principle is some translations in some Bibles, and it's certainly true because the same Greek word is often interchanged for law, for principle. What he means is it never changes. This continuous presence of sin will be with you from the time that you come to, to be born in this world until the time you die. And we call it in the believer's life, we call it a sin nature. But what it amounts to is that everybody has it. Every baby in the nursery is born with a sin nature, the Adamic nature, the nature that Adam had to excuse himself. Hey, it wasn't my fault. It's this woman you gave to me. She's the one who caused me to do what I did. Never taking responsibility for one's own self. The sin nature always tries to make excuses and tries always to subvert, as it were, 
doing right so evil can come more easily. Consequently, by the way, it's, it's at this point, and this is an important matter. We may not have any college kids with us this morning, but it's at this very point where we have a, a dividing of the ways. And when you have a science of human behavior, which is normally referred to as psychology, and psychology is the science of mind and behavior, and then you have psychiatry, which is the branch of medicine where you deal with mental and emotional and behavioral disorders. When you have those two sciences, it's at this particular point, they go down a slippery slope and they part company with what the Bible teaches so clearly. And that is that their ideal is that they try to find some kind of physical reason for a spiritual problem. And it happens over and again. They say, well, I'll tell you why that happened. It happened because of these 49 things that he happened when he was younger. Now, you'll forgive me, but the fact is what you miss so often in that is that you miss the fact that man has operative within him a sin nature. He has the law of sin and death that's constantly at work in who and who he is. And that's what this passage of Scripture is saying. The law of sin that explains why people behave the way they do. The sin nature, the very root of the problem. And unless and until you deal with their sin problem, you cannot and you will not solve their problem. And that's no matter what the problem is. And no matter where it comes from. There are physical things, without a doubt, that play upon physical emotional behavior. There's no doubt about that. But it's not the root problem. The root problem, as this would indicate so clearly, is the sin nature. And getting people to do what they do. The law of sin, the sin nature operates in the moral realm the same way that the law of gravity operates in the physical realm. The sin nature draws you back into a downward way and tries to pull you down. And by the way, the world and the devil himself will offer all the other excessive uh, kind of seductions that is needed for a real completed failure to most people. Success in the Christian life is a unique thing in the scriptures in that it's amazing that so many people succeed at it. Because so many people don't perceive this truth and they think they can make it on their own. It'd be like sleeping and swimming from Cuba to Miami to think that you could get away and live the Christian life successfully without what we'll read in chapter 8, which is the Holy Spirit's indwelling to assist you in your conflict with the sin nature. There, you are no match for the presence of evil that's inside of you. And that's why lost people do what lost people do. What makes lost people and saved people different is one thing and one thing only. It's the Holy Spirit of God using the Word of God to change them from what they were to what they ought to be. He's what keeps the lid on you doing what you would if you could get away with it without anybody knowing it. He, the Holy Spirit, is the one who keeps you conscious of what you ought to be because you've heard the law of God. You've heard the truth of God taught and you know what you ought to be. And the Holy Spirit's the helper that assists you in becoming what you ought to become. Now you can imagine what it'll be like without him. If he's not around to put a lid on all of your um, ambitions to do whatever you wish. So it shouldn't surprise you that a young lady would kill her two children. Shouldn't shock you that Lyle and and uh, Eric Menendez would kill their parents. It shouldn't shock you that someone would rape and mutilate someone's body and then video it so they could see it later to enjoy it. It shouldn't surprise you because that's exactly what man is when he's left to himself, at least the possibilities of it. That's what we talk about and we often refer to the phrase about total depravity. 
Man's totally depraved of any good whatsoever. Our problem in our society is we got this idea that there's something good in everybody. And we try to promote that because promoting it in those people makes us better. You see, if I tell you that everybody's got some good in them, then that puts me in the same boat. I've got some good in me. But if I tell you that there is no good in any of us, the Scriptures have already taught that, remember, back over in Romans chapter 3. There is no good in anybody. There is only evil in everybody. And when evil is left to itself, evil will eventually kill the people in which it is found. And that's the law of sin and death. When sin is left to itself, it brings forth what? Always death. And so if we don't counter that with the law of God, people die in sin. Now in this context, Paul moves a step further. Verse 22, he says in verse 21, I find then this, this law, this principle, that when I would do good, even at that moment, I mean my best moment, your very best moment, when you have your very best thoughts, when you really want to do right things, immediately you realize there's evil present here. At that very moment. So at your best moment, you're still not good. You're still bad. Verse 22, for I delight. This is his good moment. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Now let me tell you this, and you ought to write this beside your Bible. In verse 22, you ought to write out beside of it, evidence, evidence of salvation. You see, here's somebody who delighted in the law of God. You know, it's the law of God that brought out so much of the bad because the law of God, as it were, revives sin. And so the consequence is, in this case, the more he read, the more he saw himself for what he was, and the more he addressed it. He didn't run from it. He didn't bury his head in the sand like an ostrich. Paul the Apostle read the Word of God, and as it spoke to his heart and convicted him of his sin, he said, I've got to deal with that. I've got to take care of that. And he did, and he moved on in his life. He's not the only one. Let me take you to the Old Testament for just a few moments. Look, if you would, to the first chapter of the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 1, and verse 1, David writes, Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel or the advice of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Verse 2, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. This man's delight is in the law of the Lord. Now let me take you over about 37 chapters from that one to chapter 38. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, 109, 119. Psalm 119, I'm getting ahead of my points. Psalm 119, look if you would at Psalm 119. And look first at verse number 16. Psalm 119. Look at verse 16. Psalm 119 and verse 16, Paul says, I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Look at verse number 24 in Psalm 119. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Look at verse number 35. Verse 35, David says, Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Look at verse number 47. In verse 47, I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. And then skipping over a bit to ver verse number 70, where he says, Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in thy law. And then finally, verse 77 let thy tender mercies come unto me, that I may live, for thy law is my delight. I remind you that this is as 
David, or excuse me, as Paul says concerning even what David testifies to, this is the testimony of the inward man. You see it in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. He's not talking about the fleshly man, the sin-natured man. He's talking about that inner man that always wants to do right. That part of you that always balances the scale, as it were, to do that which he ought to do. That's the person that delights in that. But when you get up in the morning, I'm going to tell you right now, the, the flesh is going to say, hey, look, it's too early to read the Scripture. Man, your mind's not clear. You've not had enough caffeine. You've not had enough to drink. You're going to have to drink some more, and then you're, you know, we can think. You know? And the flesh will tell you that. Then when after you get a few cups of coffee, you say, oh, man, I'm so jittery now. I've got to get to work. I'm just go high strung. Let's go do it. You know? And then you've got to go to work, and you leave the Word. You don't read it again. And then you get busy through the day. You don't have time. And then you get home at night. You're too tired, and it's time to go to bed, and you've got to start the routine all over the next day again. Who do you think won? Not the inward man. Not at all. No, that's the sin nature. That's that evil present in you that rises up and it counters any good that you want to do and it keeps you from doing what you ought to do. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in the context of this passage. When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he wrote these words. It was regarding prayer. He said, he prayed that he would grant you, this is Ephesians 3.16, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. That's where the battle is. And Paul prayed for the Ephesians. He said, your battle is not going to be external. Your battle is going to be internal. And I'm praying that you'll be strengthened in the inner man. And if you're not strengthened in the inner man, I don't have to worry about your outer. Your outer has been had. It's all over. But Paul said this is the most strategic battle that is fought, and it is fought with the evil that's present with you. Look at verse 23. Verse 21, I find then a law, a principle, that when I would do good at my very best moments, that which I desire to do right, there's a presence of evil that's always present. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after or because of the inner man and his reaction. But verse 23, but... I see that other law. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul quickly acknowledges something in verse number 22. He acknowledges this delight in the law of God. But just as quickly when you come to verse 23, he acknowledges something else. He acknowledges the possibility of not delight, but defeat dealing with that inner man. You see, in verse number 23, he's saying he's been brought into captivity to the law of sin, which is in his members. Does he say, well, he just gave up and gave in? No. He fought the battle, and in some cases he loses. Everybody in this room has. If you've been saved by the grace of God, you can relate to what verse 23 is all about. Try hard to be right and do right and behave right and all that, but somehow you sometimes lose. Paul's talking about not only the delights of God's Word. By the way, it's an interesting thing to this that he found the delight in God's law, and so it encourages us to believe that he, like David, read the law and read the Word and probably hid it in his heart, but it did not say that you'll never fall and never will say that you can't somehow be brought back into captivity to sin. So don't you get cocky and arrogant and high-flying on your horse. You remind yourself that as the Spirit of the Lord indwells you and as you feed your heart and life on the Word of God, your likelihood of being defeated is a lot less for sure, but not a past the point that you can be brought down and brought down quickly. What's interesting here, so there is a law of my mind 
Paul says in this context. And he says in reading and obeying and delighting in God's Word, that's the, that's the mind issue. But he also says, then there's this law of my members, your body parts. And he says, my body members doing what my sin nature suggests, that's a body issue. So here you have a mind issue where the Word of God is read, it is, is obeyed, it's delighted in, and then you have your body here. And this body has certain desires, and if this body does not get what it wants, it pitches a fit. And so the two of these are contrary one to the other all the time. Not just at certain times, all the time. The body is fighting the mind. And that's why all through the scriptures you hear, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let this mind be in you, the mind of Christ be in you. So you think the way he did. And making sure it is, in fact, mind over matter. Your mind does matter, and it is important that you feed it right, because if you don't feed it right, then your members won't be right. And Paul says in this context, that's exactly the problem. By the way, that's exactly why you read through the Scriptures. You read it in Psalm 24. It says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holiest place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. You see the correlation? This is his, his, his mind, his heart. These are his hands. This is what he does. So the correlation is between mind and body, heart and hand. So every time you read that, what the scriptures are saying, make sure you bring the both of them into a relationship that is under a submission and mastery of the Lord himself and his word. So that you're thinking right so you can behave right. By the way, right here we need to be very careful because we have that New Testament fella. The story is told about him. It's in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Listen to this. Luke chapter 22. And in this particular case, Luke 22, and I read in verse number 23, or excuse me, 33. Luke 22, 33. He says very simply, And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And the Lord said, I tell you, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Now what you ought to understand about that is when we talk a lot about Peter's betrayal of the Lord, his denying of the Lord, we talk about that. But what you ought to keep in mind is that probably nobody loved the Lord any more than Peter did. And you'll forgive me if I pass judgment, but I doubt there's anybody in this room loved the Lord any more than Peter loved the Lord. I doubt that. I doubt that a guy would go through what he went through and, and suffer as he suffered as did the other apostles if he did not really love the Lord. I doubt that. And so when this guy comes face to face with this problem, what, uh, what you and I need to understand is that we, um, we may, not under, may not understand Peter, but what we do understand is this. We all have the same sin nature that Peter had. And what we need not doubt is that Peter probably didn't understand the sin nature at that point. He probably didn't quite understand that there was an evil presence with him all the time. He probably didn't comprehend what Paul had written because Paul hadn't written Romans 7 by this time. My point about all that is to say this, beware believer. No matter how much of God's word you have read, you have obeyed, you have delighted in, the sin nature still pulls you downward and you can so easily, like Peter, deny the Lord, the one that you say you love and the one that you've expressed appreciation and loyalty to, and you can give in to all those things that testify that you've denied him just like Peter did. 
Those people walk up to you and say, you tell me you love the Lord and you do that. We can fail there. But no worse than what Peter did. And we ought not be so unkind to him because he didn't have quite what we do. We carry a Bible and we read it and have keen insights about what is present with us. And I doubt seriously he understood what was inside him. Look back at Romans chapter 7. Now skip to verse 24. In verse 24, after Paul sees this other law or another law in his members warring or battling against the law of his mind, and that where the Holy Scriptures come through, the gate of the mind, in this law that works to bring him into captivity to the law of sin, which was in his members or his flesh, he cries out in verse number 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul feels the ongoing battle, I guess you'd say, in this context of verse 24, the sin nature, the ever-presence of evil. And it's so overwhelming that Paul cries out, O wretched man that I am. By the way, the word wretched in the Greek language was a, a word that always reflected the exhaustion of a man who just returned from battle. That's exactly the word the Greeks use when they talk about men who fought to the death. They use wretched. He was a wretched man. He fought to the death. He fought till there was no life left in him. And that's the word the Greeks would use. He was a wretched man. And I say to you, Paul is saying, I'm fighting to the finish. I'm fighting all the way down. I'm fighting till my last breath. And by the way, that's how you and I have to fight. You see, the sin nature does not go away. It is yours until you die and enter into the presence of the Lord. So what it has to be, it's just like a, a can. If you take a, a baking soda, if you take baking soda, and for all the kids in this room who hear this, you may want to talk to mom and dad before you try this. But anyway, you can take baking soda, put it in a container, and then pour vinegar in it, and man, it'll just go everywhere. I mean, it's exciting. Don't drink it. Don't drink it. You, you never had heartburn till you take a sip of that. But anyway, the fact of the matter is you can put a lid on it, and that thing will blow the lid off. I mean, it'll just, it'll do all kinds of exciting stuff. That's sort of the sin nature. Holy Spirit keeps a lid on it and keeps you from being what you would be were it so that the Spirit did not dwell within you. And Romans chapter 8 will tell us that. It'll explain some things about the details. Let me show you that, that Paul is not the only guy who did this and dealt with this. Look, if you would, in, in the passage I referred to a while ago in the Psalms. Look at Psalm 38. And this is a unique psalm because I'll be honest with you. When I read Psalm 38, and I'm just going to read to you the first 10 verses, though when I was reading it, I read all of it, I, I wearied in reading it. I mean that, you know, you get you read something that's happening, and you almost feel the, the tiredness, the exhaustion, the weariness of what the man who's writing it feels. You can almost feel his exhaustion from fighting this war with his own sin nature and his old evil self. Look at Psalm 38, verse number 1, and verses 1 through 10. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, and neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. For thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin." For mine iniquities are gone over mine head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. And I, I go mourning all the day long. 
For my loins are filled with loathsome disease, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken, and I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before thee, and my groaning is not hid from thee. My heart panteth, my strength faileth me. As for the light of mine eyes, it also is gone from me. Every time I read that, I get weary. I get almost exhausted letting this guy tell me all the things that he's going through. And what he's going through is a battle that's between right and wrong, good and evil. And I say to you that it's the evil within that Abel's fighting with. And it's an ongoing battle. And everybody in this room has it and will continue to fight with it. Paul refers here in Romans chapter number 7 to this body of death. And he talks about it and he said, Oh, wretched man that I am... Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The body of this death. You see, if the sin nature doesn't have a body like we all have bodies to deal with, then it probably wouldn't be a big deal. By the way, that's the good news. When you get to heaven, you won't have one of these. You won't have one of these. A glorified body has a lot of differences of what we have here. And big difference is it has no relationship to the sin of this world and the sin nature. That's all forgotten history. And so Paul alludes to it here as saying, I now have this body of death. And by the way, what's interesting to me is when I was reading through a couple of uh, dictionaries and reading a little bit of the customs of the land and one of those books I have that sort of covers a wide spread of subject matter, a wide spread of uh, subject matter, it came across one section that said this possibility that when Paul wrote that, he was alluding to a, a law that was in, uh, in effect during that day. And that a law was a very simple one. That is, when a person committed a murder, he or she was bound hand to hand face to face with the corpse of the victim and then set free in the heat of the Mediterranean sun. The dictionary went on to say, as the corpse decomposed, decayed, it spread death into the living man and became to him or her the body of death. Himself or herself dying in a few days or weeks. And the dictionary added, However, they usually went mad before they died. You imagine being strapped face to face, hand to hand, chest to chest with a person that you were accused of killing and you were strapped so tightly you couldn't do anything, hardly walk, and yet you went around that in the hot sun. I'm surprised you lived two weeks. Average time they lived was 13 days, almost two weeks. But before they died, before they died, two things. One they went stark raving mad. And two, the decomposition and all the bacteria and everything else in that body that was dead found its way into the living person. And the living person died because it was so associated with the dead. That's what Paul is alluding to, I believe, in verse number 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? He is saying the people who are left to themselves in this body of death and this, this law of sin and death, their ultimate conclusion is a second death. They die a sinful death. That is, they die without Christ. They die dispatched to Christ in no relationship to God. And those people are doomed forever. But Paul says when you become a Christian and the Spirit of the Lord indwells you, he puts a pressure lid on top of that old sin nature. 
that keeps it from reaching its optimum or its highest point of possibilities. And that's what he's talking about in that verse of Scripture. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am. By the way, in verse 24, he, uh, he asks a question. He says, Who, who, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I call your attention and emphasize who because he didn't say what. Your answer is not in a what. Your answer is in a who. And that's very important. And I believe it's exceedingly important because when we come to the book of uh, our chapter 8, when we get into chapter 8 of Romans, as I've told you before, what makes up chapter 7 so unique is it has about 40 personal pronouns. I, me, myself, Paul wrote. When you come over to the book of Romans chapter 8, I think there are only two or three, and uh, the, the key personality there is the Holy Spirit, probably mentioned 18 to 20 times, but not an I or a me. It's Him. It's a who. And when He says, who is it that's to deliver me, in verse 24, He comes right back in verse 25, and He literally answers it before your eyes. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's a period. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who can deliver us from this? I thank God it's Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Jesus Christ, a right relationship to him. Jesus Christ died on the cross not only effectively dealing with the problem of sin, but he also effectively dealt with the problem of Satan. He is a defeated foe. But he not only dealt with our sin and Satan, but he also dealt with our sin nature. And he makes it possible for you and I to live the successful, victorious Christian life but only in a continuous, personal, deeper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our problem is so often we lose the battle of our personal victory in the Lord Jesus Christ to the sin nature because we think of once you get saved, you're home free. Oh, you're home free, all right. You'll get to heaven. There's no doubt about that. We believe in the security of the believer. But there's a lot of land between here and there. And you can lose a lot of battles before you get there. And there are a lot of Christians who sit on the sidelines who've been washed up on the shores of the Christian faith for this very reason. They thought once you got saved, home free, man. It's like a clear sail. That's not true. Because they didn't understand that there is an evil present with every one of us. And if that evil is not held in check by the work of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God on our hearts, minds, and conscience then that evil grows and gets worse. And that's why you have people who step out of the Christian faith and live like the devil. I'm reminded, and, I, I, and I, I hate to bring this thought before my mind, but I'm reminded of a young man who was our associate pastor, associate pastor in our church. And this young man, I believe, was as servant-oriented as anybody I've ever met in my life. Saved under the ministry of the church we had in Ohio. He and his wife... Wonderful people. If you met them at that time, you would have loved them. But how in the world what took place in his life took place apart from Romans chapter 7 and understanding it, there is no explanation. It was a young man who stepped out of line. And after stepping out of line, something, as it were, seemed to take over. He had no more desire to come back. There was no more will to do that which was right. And if I were to take you to that young man today and... Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you and I, neither one would probably recognize him, not only by how he looks, but what he would say to you, how he would act around you. 
And I suspect if I even told him who I was, and I was his pastor for a long time before I called him on staff, he would probably spit in my face. How could that happen? Because inside of him is an evil nature just like in all of us. And don't you ever think for a second that you have got this thing by the tail on a downhill swing. Because the moment that you guys, as it were, take the lid off, that evil expands and explodes. And that's why you have a lot of people sitting on the sideline even this hour. By the way, don't get the wrong idea. The secret of a successful Christian life, living in the flesh as you have to do it, and that is in a body like we have, is not, is not trying to outsmart the devil. You don't have to do that to be successful in the Christian life. You don't have to outsmart the devil. Our Lord told us this and made it clear. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And that's what he was talking about. So you don't have to try to outsmart the devil. You don't have to play tricks and you don't have to, to command him to do a bunch of stuff, which I don't personally think he'll listen to you anyway. I believe that's a, a, a wild idea that the scriptures do not encourage. I think the Bible teaches what James said so clearly. You simply resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You don't have to stand up and command him to do anything. You just resist what he encourages and the Bible is clear, he'll flee from you. So we have an answer to that. We have a solution to that problem. The other thing that's important to understand and note is that it is not trying to overpower the flesh in your own power. You don't say, yes, I know I've got this evil presence and I know I've got this sin nature, but I know what I'm doing. But I am keeping, I am keeping an arm twist on that thing. I don't know how many of you folks have ever seen um, mules shooed. You ever, seen, you ever seen anybody shoe a mule that was a little bit cantankerous? Anybody seen that? Let me tell you what they do. It's called a, no, it's called a nose twist. Brother Harold, you ever seen him put a nose twist? Yeah. You take this mule's nose... That's the, if you don't know what a nose is on a mule, it's everything above his mouth. Everything. I mean, you just take everything right here. And you wad it up. Then you tie, you tie a rope around it. And then you put a stick in it, in the, in, the, in the loop of the rope. And then you start twisting. And that mule begins to go. It gets about right there. You know, gets really in an uncomfortable position. And then the guy goes back and shoes this mule. You know why? Because he's so concentrated and so focused on this that he doesn't care about this. And, and he won't kick you. You know, you get him, you get him focused. You know, you get, as I used to say, you got to get his attention. And believe me, you put a nose twist on a mule, you have his attention. Uh, I've been around barns and stalls and stables. When my dad was a logger, we had a stable of mules. And old Sam, biggest mule in the whole stable of mules. I'm telling you, this was an, a, a one more mean junkyard and mean dog kind of mule. I mean, he'd kick at a heartbeat and he'd snort and jump and paw. Uh, he was just flat out dangerous and he was big, great big mule. And I remember seeing Sam, big mule, then putting a twist on his nose, and I remember Sam going down to his knees. And then I saw him roll over. And man, that guy down there, he said, no problem, we'll shoe him on the ground. And they shooed big Sam on the ground all four feet. Never kicked, never even grunted. But boy, when he got up, <laughs> when he got up, 
He was one more mad machine. And boy, he stormed out in that field. He kicked the side of the barn with his hind feet. I mean, this mule was mad and raging. But the thing we learned very quickly, and I learned it early in, is that, that uh, that's not how you deal with the flesh. You don't have to overpower the flesh in order to get the victory of it. What's interesting about it is rather it is not trying and it's not somehow my uh, um, overpowering my flesh and it's not outsmarting the devil, but what it is, it's rather surrender to the Lord of glory through the Holy Spirit that indwells. You see, the Holy Spirit would never steer you wrong. You get that? The Holy Spirit that indwells you as a believer will never steer you wrong. So if you simply submit to Him and His direction on any given moment, you don't have to worry about being defeated by the flesh or the evil presence. And that's really what Paul is coming down to in this verse because he closes it with this statement. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin is ideal. The Holy Spirit works on the mind. The Holy Spirit's the one who keeps applying and drawing to your understanding the Holy Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit's the one who is the secret of the success in the believer's life. It is not the believer's great abilities that he has gained in experience or gained over the years from his hiding God's Word in his heart. Those, those are all good and right in their proper place. But standing alone without the help of the Holy Spirit, they will not give success. When we come to Romans chapter 8, that's what that chapter is all about is understanding that person who makes life, in the Christian life at least, a success. But to get to there, you have to first of all know Christ. And I say to you, if you're here this morning and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, I can tell you this. You may not be as bad as you could be, but you're not good. There are people who say, hey, I know a guy, he, he, he's not a saved man, but he's a good man. Well, good is a comparative word. Good compared to something else. The fact is the scriptures make it very clear there are none good. No, not a single one in the Greek. None are good. No, not a single one. All men are evil. All men are born sinners. Every person born into this world is born into this world a sinner. And I say to you that that then has to be addressed and reckoned with before you can move on to the ideal of being victorious in living the Christian life. So if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ, and I tell you with encouraged heart that this is the right place at the right time. We begin the invitation in just a moment, singing just as I am. And as we do, we invite you to come and allow someone to take a Bible and show you from the Scriptures how you can be saved and know it and be certain of it. If you're a believer here this morning and God has spoken to your heart about your Christian life and its journey, maybe it's about the need of baptism. That's encouraging to obedience. The fact is, the Scriptures command us to be obedient in baptism, but not for salvation, but because we're saved, to identify with Christ. The other thing is about church membership, being a part of a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church where you can exercise your gifts so that you are bless others, encourage others in the walk with Christ. And then maybe, in just in your case, carrying a heavy burden that you need to share, you need to unload. And you haven't yet unloaded it on the Lord. I remind you, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures and for this passage of Romans chapter 7 especially. What a blessing it has been to see within the framework of this passage, these several verses, the prospects and the possibilities of success in the Christian life. 
how easy it is for us to think we're doing it when in fact it's always you doing it and working in our behalf to our good for your glory. And this morning, I pray, Father, as we come to this invitation, just as I am, I pray that you'll speak to every heart and every life of every person in this building, sparing none, not even my own. I pray that you'll bring to our attention the need for our dependency upon the Holy Spirit that indwells us as believers. But for those in this building who have never believed on Christ, do not have that help. The Holy Spirit does not indwell lost people, does not abide in lost people, people who have not believed on Christ as Savior. And therefore, they're going it alone. They have no help to subdue this evil that is present in us. And so this morning, I pray that you may speak to their hearts, convict their hearts of their need of Jesus Christ, and that they may come and trust Christ even as Savior today. For others, you ought to come for baptism or church membership or prayer or to unload a burden, whatever the case is. The invitation is open, and it's for all of us. So we ask you now to do what we can't, and that's move your people and those who are not yours but you draw to yourself into a circle and relationship where you can minister to them as you delight in doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? And if you need a hymn book, it's page 282, the first verse. As we sing it, if God has spoken to your heart about a need in your life, we encourage you to come and reflect upon it, deal with it, and let us help you as best we can. 282, verse 1, if God has spoken, you obey. Together, and let's sing. Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Thank you very much. I appreciate so much you being with us this morning. Thank you for your time and your attention. And may the Lord give you a good afternoon. And do please do your best to be back for the evening service. Our choir will be here at 445. 530 men will be praying downstairs. And then 6 o'clock the service here in the auditorium. And Brother Fair will be speaking. Please come. Let us pray together now as we're dismissed. Our Father, we are glad and grateful for the opportunity that you've afforded us to be in your house under the teaching and preaching of your word this morning, both in the Sunday school and now the worship service. We pray you'll help us to take to heart that which we've heard and help us now to become doers of the word and not just hearers only. Bless, I pray, those who could not come because of sickness. We do pray for their healing and pray for you to raise them up and get them back to us very, very soon. And those who are away, I pray, give safety back as they return to our city. And, Father, we would pray that you would bless in the needs of those of our fellowship, like Larry, who's still in the hospital, and, and um, Pat Craney, who has special needs regarding her cancer, the comfort you need to yet bring to Mrs. Reed. And, Father, the case with Tammy's healing that she had taking place at home. And I pray, Father, that you continue to minister in these needs, these areas, and work your will in each of their cases. Thank you so very much for your goodness to us, and thank you for the salvation we have in Christ. And help us as we go from this place now to demonstrate the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.